I'm Wally Fister, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben Rock, producer, director, podcaster, how are you today? (laughs) I am fine, Ilya Friedman, uh, proprietor of Hot Rod Cameras and uh, film technician or technology expert extraordinaire. Well, thanks. I'm doing just fine, too. Um, Thank you for joining me for uh, our Wally Fister part two host wraps here. Oh, my God. So excited. I, I know. It's really good. And if you liked part one, it's just more the same in part two. It just goes into other stuff. And no, it's, but it's, it goes into that. Yeah. I mean, like part one is a lot of Roger Corman and, and uh, softcore uh, <laughs> kind of movies. And we're, we're getting into the nut meat here. This is this is some of the, some of the great. I mean, like I love the man's work, but uh, but yeah, I could probably do a full interview just about Inception or just about the prestige. Like his work is just so amazing. This interview is a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to. Uh, sometime in the future when Wally comes back and we talk about all kinds of other stuff just because this was such a blast. But uh, before we can get to the interview, uh, close focus. Usually this is the time when we talk about something topical, something that's going on in the industry. And of course, COVID cases are hitting an all-time high in the U.S. 195,000 people, I think, on Friday or something like that. The most cases in a single day. Most cases in a single day. Not something to be proud of, but that is uh, the world The most people currently hospitalized with COVID. Now, uh, one of the things is that there was a fatality rate, I believe, if I'm not misspeaking, that was at 1.40%, which meant if you were hospitalized, you had... Uh, Almost uh, a coin a, flip, yeah. A 40% chance of surviving. And now, because they have better techniques and better... Understanding uh, of all of this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so now you're down to 20%, which still means one in five people who go into the hospital are not coming out. Yeah, it's brutal, and it, it affects all of our lives. It affects all of our health, all of our interpersonal relationships, and it, of course, affects the economy, and the economy for the motion picture and television industries in a really big way. Theaters well, continue. Yeah, uh, you know, c- yeah. kind of weird how people don't go to the movie theaters <laughs> when, <laughs> when there's a pandemic. Well, funny, funny you should mention it. Uh, there are a few people who are going, but of course, the movie that won this week's box office won with a million take nationwide on 2,700 screens. It was the new freaky horror film. You'd probably know the title better than I Freaky. Freaky. I thought thought it might be like Freaky Friday, but it wasn't Freaky Friday. No, no, it's a play on Freaky Friday. Yeah, with Vince Vaughn. Uh, I haven't seen it yet uh, because I didn't didn't rush out to the theater. (laughs) No, but uh, but that is, uh, as most people would note, probably about one per like it wasn't unusual for a movie to do 100 million in a weekend, Uh, you know, a big tentpole kind of movie so that's like one percent of what an avengers movie or some kind of movie like that would have done in a weekend yeah and if you divide that number by like 2700 screens you end up with something like oh i don't know not not a lot four hundred dollars a screen or something like that probably yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah and i mean uh, you know if there's only 30 people in a 500 seat movie theater that's been sanitized and safely set up you can certainly space people out in such a way that they are safe in there. 
but you're not going to get the big numbers that you want. And so it's, you know, obviously uh, movie theater exhibitors have been hammered by this. And the thing you wanted to talk about was another nail in the coffin, really. It's the new Warner Brothers movie, uh, the new uh, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 1984, right? Well, Wonder Woman 84, 1984. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's it. Which is being released day and date. Uh, so that means that you can get it. You can go see it in the theater when it comes out, which is December, correct? Yeah, really soon. Yeah. So uh, day and date, you can see it in the theater or you can watch it on HBO Max on your <laughs> on your iPhone. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one or the other. I, well, I, well I, one of them I might give, like have a, less of a chance of you contracting COVID. So that one, one is uh, infinitely safer. And the other one is the way that Patty Jenkins probably intended the movie to be seen. You know, of course, it's kind of inevitable that a movie like that would like they need to get it out. <laughs> they, they can't just sit on it till possibly halfway through 2021 which is when we may be safe enough to go back in the theater if the vaccine all works and everyone also gets it you know like there's a lot of question marks floating out there about what's happening so to me it seemed inevitable that they were going to make a decision like this but it screws up movie theaters it kicks them in the teeth a little while they're already down it's a weird moment right now for theaters. Uh, they've, they've never been more embattled. Having Warner Brothers decide to do a day and date release, it's got to be another blow to them because they were really counting on these tentpole studio movies to, to carry them forward as or allow them to limp forward as best possible. But they're not going to get that shot now or not really. Yeah, Die Another Day, the, uh, the new James Bond movie was another one, which I think they're still holding out hopes of putting in theaters, but it was supposed to come out this month. And, you know, because there was no chance of movie theaters being open this month in America, they pushed it forward. Uh, I don't know that they've set a date or if they've pushed it already, but it's into next year. Uh, you know, it's the responsible thing to do. It's weird to me that people are feel safe going to movies in Europe and in other parts of the world where a movie like Tenet could make like regular box office numbers overseas. And of course, tanked over here because can't go to the movies. <laughs> Interesting to note too, I heard a epidemiologist or a virologist talking about the safety of theaters uh, just recently. And they were saying that if people didn't eat or drink during the movie, that would actually make it much, much more safe because they could wear a mask the entire time inside of the, you know, it's inside of an enclosed space, of course, mm -hmm. but the improvements that most theaters are doing in air purification systems and stuff would actually make it make the chances significantly less. But because theaters have such a profit motivation to sell as many concessions as possible, outrageous prices, because that's really where the profit center is. It's far more profitable for them to sell snacks than it is to sell you a ticket uh, because they're not getting rid of the concessions. Yeah. The, the theater is probably a much more dangerous place because of that. If they had gotten rid of that, probably a lot more people could go. So the million dollar idea here is just like a bubble that you can put over your the bridge of your nose that goes down to your, the rest of your body. And, and so you can like you're kind of stuck in there, but you can like, you know, shovel handfuls of popcorn or milk duds into your mouth without breaking the seal. It's basically a garbage bag that clips up onto your nose. Like hangs Come on, on down like to a, AMC and strap on like your a, feed bag. <laughs> your feed bag. Your, your, your COVID-19 protection N95 feed into, bag. But they're like they're like those uh, the the how you put your arms through a thing like uh, in in a chemistry lab or something uh, like <laughs> like like a like a hazmat suit basically. Is what yeah, you're yeah, it's it's a hazmat suit, but for concessions, and it's, maybe it's got like a straw built into it so you can just drink Dr Pepper right through it. Welcome to Cinemark. Please step over here to don your your hazmat suit and join us at, in your new comfortable <laughs> Enjoy reclining tenet. seat. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy tenant. Thank you for risking your life to watch a movie. <laughs>
it's be, everyone's going to be respirating and yeah, we've oh turned up God. the volume and yeah it's everything's going to reverberate differently inside your hazmat suit they're, they're but, actually it's going to they're just going to install speakers in there that they beam the audio <laughs> to you surround sound what they do is they just hand you an iphone and stick you into a body bag <laughs> that way they can just wheel you on out uh, if you don't make it oh man so i wanted <laughs> to so bring terrible. up something though that uh <laughs> that you actually were bringing up to me which are is are things people don't really think about the downstream effects of the lack of theatrical releases mm. and yeah, a big yeah. one that you were talking about was press company junkets. that you deal with yeah. yeah yeah who 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 does press junkets could you talk a little bit about that oh sure i actually had an, an in-person meeting from 10 or 15 feet apart last week, which is my first time leaving the office and, and doing that in uh, since COVID, really. It's been been months. But it was, a, it was a rental house client who has a very, very large client of theirs who does press junkets. And in fact, they, they actually revealed to me if they had no other clients for the year and just this one client, it would be enough to sustain them because it was such a major part of their business, renting equipment to uh, this press junket company, which of course also booked like hotels or convention centers or whatever it might be and uh, put actors in there and brought in uh, crews and things to to we've interviewed movies. people at press junkets oh yeah we've, we've done it but here's the thing that that's a whole industry into itself and that client has gone away for my client the rental company and they were like yeah uh you know we're, we're gonna be okay but that's a huge blow to us because they're just telling actors to make themselves up and do it from home now and get in front of a, a zoom link or something and they're saying that it is so much less expensive for them to do this and people seem to accept the low-end self-lighting quality of someone sitting in front of their computer and, and doing all this now that uh that's a chunk of business that may never return or may never return in the way that it used to for a lot of productions and if movies aren't going to the theater anyway the importance of those press junkets and the way that that content gets distributed across social media and broadcast and and print and a million other different different ways uh, that may all change now too, because it's going to be on Netflix as, as you were saying before for a couple of days and then maybe it might disappear. And then, uh, all of that press sort of stuff is gone because it doesn't have the theatrical run. It doesn't have the window of exclusionary from everything else where someone has to pay money to go see their favorite actor or yeah. see whatever their favorite director. And yeah. The just... event, the event feeling, well, I'm personally very bullish on the idea that when we're able to go back to the theaters, that theatrical will pick back up. And since, you know, HBO Max is owned by Warner Brothers anyway, and Warner Brothers, you know, they're a company built on theatrical distribution. I'm assuming that they're going to try and figure out, you know, like I, I assume that they'll go back to it. Maybe Zoom press junkets are a thing that are here to stay, but I don't know. I mean, I think we all want to get back to normal life at some point. And I feel like watching Zoom on network television, I feel like is going to be like a reminder that we're living in these terrible post-apocalyptic times uh when we want to not be so you know my guess is and also like you know the actors like to everybody likes doing that stuff you know and i and i feel like if you're on you know whatever good morning cleveland and you get ryan gosling for an interview at a junket and you want to splice him into your thing it looks more official if you record it that way sure i don't know how much the actors love press junkets i i famously seem to remember that there are some actors who like won't do them and like you know that's in their contract like i'll be I mean, in your movie but there are people who hate everything because you know haters gotta hate but <laughs> i mean you know i i you know janelle riley who's been on our show before she conducts a lot of interviews not really necessarily junket interviews but i know that she's q and a's them. yeah 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and I know that she's she's done stuff at junkets as well. You know, and it, there there's an art form to it. I think the bummer of a junket for a lot of actors is answering the same exact three questions all day long, over and over again, and making it look like they just thought of the answer. That's not easy. But I think, in short, I think all this stuff, some version of it is is going to come back. And I really do think theatrical is going to make a comeback. It might be a slow thing because, you know, even though as as we're recording this, supposedly we are less than two weeks away from one of the vaccines starting to roll out. Hmm. So that's what I've heard. I mean, I think they haven't fully signed off all the paperwork on the stage three trials, but vaccines are probably going to be in our very near future. And currently there are, I think, three that I know of that look like they're going to start getting used. So hopefully what that means is mid uh, next year will be maybe up to something like normal speed, maybe kind of. I don't know. I, I do think that it's hilarious that the Pfizer vaccine, you have to get two shots 28 days apart i'm like so you're gonna get a shot and then you're gonna see them 28 days later could they have come up with could they have made it 27 days so they didn't immediately make me think of a fucking zombie movie when i got my second shot um so a a zombie attack from now we'll see you back here for your second shot thank you uh, I, I know that's exactly where your where your, your mind would go. So of course, no, one hundred percent. Hey, let's get to the interview with Wally Fister, part two. Very excited, and uh, we'll come back and we'll yak some more. Excellent. So here is Wally Fister, part two. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So where we kind of left it was, I kind of wanted to talk about the filming on, on the larger format stuff that you you started doing. And the reason I brought up what was going on with digital at the time was that the world was zigging digitally and you and Christopher Nolan zagged into large format celluloid and did stuff that was, you know, just groundbreaking. You know, like what, what powered that decision? And also like I've heard about shooting on IMAX cameras, uh, you know, just the challenges because it's the size of a Volkswagen. Talk a little bit about like what powered that decision because that it was a very at the at any time that was an unconventional decision for a studio film. Yeah, you know it was sort of born of this idea that Chris had, and I think it it came from one of the visual effects guys on Batman Begins. I think it might have been Yannick Sers, who was the um, uh, visual effects supervisor on Batman Begins, had sort of mentioned to Chris that they do... In fact, I I think they actually shot some plates on IMAX and had mentioned to Chris that they shoot plates on IMAX. And I think that kind of piqued Chris's interest. And I I had had a long history as a sort of fan of IMAX. And I remember seeing one of the early IMAX films in the 70s, To Fly, which Mm. was, you know, uh, really kind of mind-blowing and so I was a big fan and the fact that it was this large format immersive experience uh, so I guess somewhere in that time Chris started thinking about it and and when we did the prestige we did a test shot on the prestige we had a visual effects shot to do where basically we had Christian Bale playing both characters in you know himself and his brother within the same frame so we had to add him in a, in a visual effect and Chris wanted to do it as an optical visual effect I believe so he had this idea to bring an IMAX camera to set and, and so you know we got to play with this camera we shot the play with it worked perfectly worked beautifully and we saw the, the projected resolution is extraordinary um, so somewhere you know in that time leading up to Dark Knight you know Chris sort of concocted this idea that we should try to shoot uh, you know a portion of Dark Knight on on IMAX and he brought it up to me early on and said here's something I've been thinking about and immediately got me into researching it and he had already 
already met a few of the IMAX people, so he has done he had done his own sort of early you know research. But so we started looking into you know the functionality and the potential of shooting IMAX you know for narrative feature film for the first time. And later on, when we did Dark Knight Rises, we actually had a, a special lens built that we took these Hasselblad lenses, and we got a high-speed lens built that Dan Sasaki created for us. So we kind of started revolutionizing lenses for IMAX with that one. It was a T2 50-millimeter mm-hmm. IMAX lens, which really made it useful for us for night exterior work. But we, you know, since then, I really think they've done a lot of work on the cameras. You know, for Hoyta in particular, I think he, he got involved in work on the, um, the eyepiece uh, and the finder system and got did some improvements on that. We got some, had some improvements on that for Dark Knight Rises as well. And, and so really it was from one film to the next really evolving, you know, to be a more functional system. And, you know, being the pioneer of this on, on Dark Knight, we went in with no knowledge of IMAX and really the IMAX people early on were telling both me and Chris saying, you should really hire an IMAX DP to shoot the IMAX segments. And, and Chris and I yeah. kind of looked at each other and were like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'll figure it out. You know, basically we want the lighting to be the same. And I did tests. And yeah, the tests, tests really, really, what they tell you is there's no place to hide lights. You know, you're, you're dealing yeah. with this massive frame. Uh, you're dealing with more shallow depth of field, not surprisingly. So, you know, we're either, you know, upping the stop a little bit or, you know, the whole focus and field of focus is, is very different and more challenging. But basically, you look at all those challenges and then you figure out how to crack it, you know, uh, and you do tests. And that's what we did. So the notion of hiring somebody to specially handled IMAX stuff was not necessary. We did have uh, two IMAX technicians working with us who knew the cameras inside out and who worked with Bob and his second ACs in in kind of streamlining the system uh, and mm-hmm. making sure everything was working. We did have some, you know, mechanical issues along the way. Um, but look, we figured it out. And, you know, in the end, 25% of Dark Knight was shot uh, with the IMAX camera and closer to 50% of it was shot on um, Dark Knight Rises. And in both cases, the film was scanned for, for digital work and for the 35 millimeter release prints. But in IMAX, the film was shown as camera, you know, original prints that maintained the incredible image quality and immersive nature of, of IMAX. So it was really important to Chris to, to preserve as much of the resolution, grain, and integrity of that image. So we were really getting the best we could of out of IMAX. So, so it was really fun. It was really challenging. Um, you know, I'm most proud of those big action sequences on the streets uh, in Chicago and, you know, particularly the truck flip and the scenes leading oh, up to the truck yeah. flip with, you know, Heath in the middle of, of uh, Michigan. I don't, it's not Michigan Avenue. I uh, can't remember. But anyway, all, so all that stuff is, you know, it's really challenging. And all those chase scenes and the rigs that we built, we built a special head, um, used a larger helicopter rig for the aerial work. So, yeah, it was, it was quite an accomplishment, you know, big technical feat. But I was also happy with how I was able to maintain the aesthetic of the lighting for the most part with that large frame and, uh, and limited, you know, capabilities. 
but but so it was you know uh, once the camera's rolling once you're getting into it you know the size of the film really doesn't make a difference at that point for the most part you're obviously dealing with a larger physically larger camera body trying to make it through these tight spaces but the real fun comes when you see it on the screen and and, and we did dailies you know on IMAX uh, oh wow <laughs> while we were shooting which is which is pretty mind blowing and and that's where we saw it all you know raw and and knew that you know we had something incredibly uh immersive and something that could do that large screen proud you know let's move on to inception because again as, as i told you at the beginning i could probably spend an hour just on inception but i won't yeah uh, me too. <laughs> let's move into inception because in inception you guys took that technology uh not the technology but the large format stuff even further than you did in the dark well, night if i'm not yes and no we you know it's interesting we didn't shoot imax on inception and the reason for that was Chris sort of came to me again and with this notion of, um, hey, I wanted to have a really loose feel and I don't want to, you know, be confined to, to the dollies and the cranes. And I love the way we shot Prestige. You know, let's do Inception that way, but let's shoot it on IMAX. And I was like, well, I don't know, you know, the two things that you're kind of describing don't really work together because you want this loose handheld vibe and feel uh, but we can't really do that with IMAX cameras. And it's true, we couldn't really maneuver around the way we ended up doing an Inception mm-hmm. without shooting on, on 35 millimeter. Even, had, even I, had I had the, you know, the power and stamina uh, that Hoyta had in terms of being <laughs> able to carry that IMAX camera, it, it's just too lengthy and, and bulky to make it around corners and, and to be nimble with it. And, and we did a lot of nimble handheld camera work in inception that really it could only be done with a smaller you know 35 millimeter camera we did however shoot 65 millimeter that's what i'm thinking about i'm sorry well and that was sort of the compromise we we looked at a number of different things chris really did want to try to do something visually different so we actually looked at this uh we looked at show scan which was an old format that was really really cool old short-lived format so we tried that format it didn't really make sense for us we ended up going to 65 millimeter Panavision cameras, which were really cool, but not not quite like IMAX. You know, they didn't, the, the aspect ratio was different and didn't film the, fill the frame like IMAX did. So it was a different, different beast, but did give us that higher resolution that we were looking for in a lot of these segments whenever we could use it. Well, in Inception, and I think that, that this kind of covers a lot of the stuff that you've done with Christopher Nolan, is you're kind of doing a magic trick on us and you're not showing us certain things in a way. And I gather that Christopher Nolan does a lot of the design of the shots and builds the sequences and, you know, like he's masterminding that. But I'm just wondering when you're trying to film something that I'm not, I'm supposed to look at somebody and not see the truth or not realize it. Like, is there an approach, especially given that Inception is like, everything's clearly lit. Like it's not a super noir like there's out of, like completely dark stuff in the background kind of thing. But I feel like it's a movie that's that deals with so much um, misdirection, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Is there an approach that you, that you take to kind of filming that stuff? How do you, how do you film the misdirection? Well, here's the, the thing. I, I think we really didn't overthink how we, we covered scenes. You know, again, the, the most important thing was to, to, to get the story 
across in a clear way without gimmickry, you know, and in a way that wasn't distracting to what's going on in the story. So again, I kept the natural light theme going, but I, but I really did, I was able to get sort of a mood to it and a, and a you know, a look to it and a crispness. And, and, and I think oh, for, sure. for me, it was sort of a, you know, it was sort of a James Bond kind of look and feel. So the higher end look of those and having something where the, the lighting aesthetic is pleasing and and works well for the film uh, and in some areas is a little more stylized in terms of sort of how we decide how to film a scene it was always a very simple process chris and i would watch a rehearsal with the actors and then by that time we, that was our sixth film to, together so we both sort of you know it's it's almost unspoken you kind of look at each other and like yeah over here yeah and you know master <laughs> you know over over here and then sort of there would be something that was like you know chris would be like well i you know i, I want to do a slow push in during this part and and he was very involved in those when we do you know a dolly in on a particular line he'd He'd stand behind the dolly grip and tap the dolly grip's shoulder when he wanted the camera to start moving in on the character. And so we had a, you know, we had a system and it was not complicated and it worked very well for how I wanted to be able to light the scenes. And so we didn't really overthink the the coverage and the style in which we filmed these uh, these things. So... Well, what about like the sequences where you have characters in uh, basically zero gravity and so you had to use a super complicated hanging rig and, and position the Yeah, camera. I mean, it's really, that's all just really technical, you know what I mean? It's it's like if you know it's what's ha- really happening in the scene, you have to crack it. I mean, let's say let's say Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the uh, the rotating hallway, you know, Chris comes up with this idea of, of, of this zero G effect in the hallway and it's a it's a really amazing cool you know idea and and its execution requires sort of us figuring out how it is we want to see it on the screen so you know the conversations were more about okay how much are you going to use sort of the camera mounted to the floor as it's rotating and how much are we going to be in an arm that's free of the floor um, and as I went back and looked at it, I, I realized that the camera that was not mounted to the floor is only up there for a, for a moment so you can start to feel the rotation in the hallway. And then there's a camera mounted to the floor that we dollied along. From the lighting standpoint, it had to, again, be practical lighting built into the set, which, you know, was really all in these overhead boxes that sort of lit all the action in a way that the camera could go anywhere it wanted to. So all the work that goes into determining how this is going to be photographed happens, you know, in pre-production. And you sit down, you discuss this. And I had a process with Chris where I would read my script and I'd just take pages of my own notes and write them on the side. And then I'd go in and have meetings with Chris and I'd ask him all the questions that I had on the pieces of paper and I'd tick them off one at a time. And, you know, where something came up that required a lengthy conversation, we'd get into that. And when I had ideas, I would present those. And it's just, you know, you do this methodical process of of creating a template for how you're going to film the movie. And for that, you won Best Cinematography. Yes, right? that was yeah. I, I, that was my fourth nomination, and then I won one for Best Cinematography on that. So tell me how that changes your your life. I mean, that's that's uh, the highest honor you can really receive in our industry. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it, it was it was a it was a crazy surreal moment. I mean, I, again, I'd been nominated four times, and I know that night, you know, Roger Deakins was nominated as well and had not won yet obviously, because he just won the last two years. But um, I had this strange feeling that night, kind of the in the split second that they said, you know, that they started showing clips. And I said, 
oh, fuck, I'm going to win this time. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. And so weirdly enough, I wasn't like completely shocked when they said my name. And and I was really proud of my work on that. I'm not going to bullshit you, you know. Yeah. Poor Roger had, you know, been nominated like eight times or something leading up to that. But I really thought, you know, Roger did incredible work before and after, and I loved his work on that film. But it wasn't it wasn't his, you know, his Oscar movie. And, and I think that, that I, I was more proud of my work on Inception than I was on Dark Knight. So I really felt that that was the film, you know, I deserved it for. So I was really, you know, stoked. And yeah, it was it was a game changer. It changed my life. Um, it really did. It made, made me realize that I was sort of getting tired of being a cinematographer too <laughs> yeah i mean i was kind of i wanted to kind of move into that yeah yeah which was i just yeah. needed something different in my life you know i just needed to change something so you, it was around that time that you started moving into directing uh you did transcendence a few years after that so i i'm, I'm always curious about uh, dps who move into directing when you direct how involved are you in the cinematography or because i I, uh, I have seen the dps who move into directing who are like extremely on all over their cinematographer and you know even just talking to the camera operator and not the dp because they know how they want the lensing or whatever i've also seen the guys who are like oh i'm so happy i don't ever have to think about where to put the lights yeah I don't know. Uh, it definitely goes both ways i mean i mean for me look i was i was i was a pain in the ass on transcendence uh, to jess hall because i hadn't really figured out how to separate those worlds uh you know at, mm. at that point and and uh and, and really couldn't let go of the, whether it was a crutch or whether it was, you know, just how important it was to me. And I couldn't separate that from, from the film itself. I was too involved in the, in the photography on, on transcendence. And, but, it, mm -hmm. but again, I probably really had a sort of, you know, look in my mind, but you know, it's, it's interesting. It sort of set up a different way, a uh, system that I, that I created for, for my commercials. And that's, that's been my mainstay for a couple of years now is directing and shooting commercials. And I started by hiring a DP. Um, and there are a couple of DPs that I really love and that, that I, you know, there's one, I did two TV pilots and I work with the same DP, Bryce Fortner, on both of those. And I really love working with Bryce because he really got my aesthetic and style, but he's a real indie guy you know strangely he had done this tv show called portlandia oh i love that show yeah it's 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 wonderful and and i love the show too and i was watching it for giggles and and then i started seeing the photography and i was like oh stuff looks great for a low budget tv show and it just got better one season to the next um and so anyway so so i hired bryce for my my tv shows and was really comfortable and and i managed to stay back and stay away from the camera and lighting but then i create a system for directing TV commercials, which is really takes us up to the present, which is I light the sets myself and, um, you know, so I'm DPing it and then I'm directing, but I, I hire a camera operator and I sort of usually work with them. Um, Dave Lukenbach here in LA and and Dave kind of runs the set for me so you know so I can spend time you know with the agency and with the actors and and setting things up you know I'll kind of talk to Dave about how I want to shoot it and you know he'll he'll do the blocking and put things together for me on the set and work with everybody on on the set to get the shots executed and um, mm -hmm. and it takes a, a load off of my directing shelf but I still like the sets because <laughs> that comes sort of yeah. easy to me I, I know how I want to set the look and how I want it lit. So by taking the camera operating out of it, it, it kind of frees up enough of my brain to, to direct actors and et cetera. 
I've, I've always, uh, this is like a constant curiosity of mine, is people who direct NDP at the same time. And there's plenty of people who do. Steven Soderbergh, famous for doing that. Peter Hyams, people don't even realize sometimes. Peter Hyams was pe- really legendary for that, yeah. And kind of the yeah. only guy at the time doing that, yeah. So I'm, I'm just interested in how, when you're in the heat of the shoot, how, does, how do you go about like kind of bifurcating your brain to be looking at the cinematography simultaneously uh, looking at the performances? Does that come easy? Is, like, is there any uh, tricks or, or you know, any, anything that you can advise about how, how to do that well? Well, I've certainly figured out how to do that in, in commercials, you know, and I, I haven't done that in a feature, unlike Soderbergh and, you know, Peter mm-hmm. Hyams. And, uh, you know, I, I've never done a feature that way. But on the commercials, I do, you know, I do have a, a system in place that works quite well. And I really do sort of w- what I found is I, I kind of I don't tweak with my lighting anyway. So we set it up and we're either shooting at the right time of day for a a day exterior or I'm lighting the set and then I'm not messing with the lighting or tweaking with it. So I put it out of my head completely. And then it's really about, so, you know, then I'm sitting in a monitor and I'm watching what's going on so I can completely focus on the performance and or on the camera movement, you know, and and again, having great camera operator, you know, you're not going to be looking at flaws in the camera movement. It's just about how can you make it better and, and how can you, you know, create a great dynamic shot. And if you listen to your collaborators, and again, Dave Luckenbach is one of my great collaborators, my camera operator, and has an opinion, has ideas, then I'm not, I'm not as focused on that. I also have a great production designer, a guy named Chris Gorak, who, who really is incredible sync with me, and we've done, you know, tons of commercials together, and um, and so the look is there. You know what I mean? I established the look of the lighting. We, we, you know, we choose the location. We, you know set the lighting and then and and the camera is being operated by a great professional who's going to nail the shot so i really can uh bifurcate as you said and and go completely to what's going on with that actor or that performer in both in dialogue and and in terms of their action or if it's not that type of thing then it's a beauty shot then it's really sort of uh focusing on the composition and and how well that shot is working Cool. Well, uh, we have some listener questions. Yeah, if you have sure, a to absolutely. Answer a few of those. Sounds perfect. Uh, this first question comes from Carl C. Foley, who uh, sent it from our Cinepod Facebook page. What was the most difficult scene you ever shot uh, as a DP? I don't know. I just I just remember these things from from <laughs> more more like when I wasn't experienced and you just don't know how to crack something, you know, and you, yeah. and you don't know how to make it look good. I remember a scene in Memento where we had to, you know, stuff this character in a closet and, and, you know, you get so precious about the lighting sometimes that you really, you really can't stand the thought of something looking like shit. But later on, you start to accept the fact that, hey, there are some things that, you know, you have to get the shot and you have to tell the story and you have to do the action. And sometimes it's going to look like shit. You're going to be shooting against a flat wall. You're not going to be able to light this in a moody fashion and and i sort of remember struggling with a couple of motel room scenes in memento because some of the motel room scenes really look beautiful but you know there's one scene where they're over at the closet and they're sort of pushed against this wall in the closet and i just couldn't make it look good and and so in terms of difficult i don't know but but in terms of difficult and pleasing myself with with my own work that's one of them (laughs) you know um, difficult. You can you can define difficult in a lot of ways. Uh, you really can. Is it, is it technically difficult? Is it difficult to find it? And, you know, a way to make it look good. Is it is it difficult for lighting? 
you know. So there, there are a lot of there are a lot of different interpretations of that question. All right. Well, um, John Nadeau. Uh, hope I'm Nado. I actually, I actually knew. I actually went to high school with John Nado. He, he's an amazing artist, like just un, unbelievably amazing painter and illustrator. Does comic books and stuff like that. Oh, neat, cool, cool. Uh, so, so John asks, what was the first movie that you saw that had cinematography that was so good that you you really paid attention to who who shot it? You know, it's strange that, and I actually told him about this one time. I remember very much, and I was probably already, uh, I might have been a cameraman already by the time I saw it, but I remember seeing one of my favorite directors is Hal Ashby, and I just watched Shampoo last week, but but I remember seeing Being There, and Mm. Caleb Deschanel had shot Being There, and I remember it having this really beautiful naturalistic style, but still having mood. So it was about as close as you could get to this Gordon Willis vibe, you know, and these these beautiful, soft interior kind of Rembrandt-y shots in being there that that really inspired me. And it made me think, you know what? I feel like this is an aesthetic I can embrace. I really love the way this looks. And and I love being able to tell Caleb that years later. You know, I got to know Caleb quite well. And and uh and i was able to tell him that and and so so that that's sort of a great great thing as well when you start to meet the people that were your inspiration and and help get you there so so that is one of the films early on i definitely noticed the aesthetic in the godfather films as i said and gordon willis was a big hero of mine and conrad hall's work um as well and in in the seminal movie for conrad hall was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But then there was another film that Conrad had shot later in his career. And I think I was in film school at the time when I saw it. Uh, it was called Jennifer Eight. Um, oh, yeah. With Andy Garcia. And and it's it's really beautifully shot. I mean, it's really extraordinarily well lit. And uh, and I remember really noticing that, too. And, and, and the other one that was really inspirational was was seven when seven came out holy crap yes it was a game changer you know darius kanji and you know fincher together it really kind of changed everything and we were just kind of getting into the film business at that time and we're like fuck man this is like this is the new look (laughs) this is how everything's gotta gotta look you know shauna hagan uh friend of the show guest of the show amazing exactly she she asks a great question here she says uh she asks are there times when your idea of how to shoot something is totally opposite of how the director wants to shoot it? <laughs> and if so, how do you reconcile those two opposing approaches? Uh, yeah, look, this this comes up all the time. And I, I, I and it, it strangely came up for me on, on, on Moneyball because, you know, uh, with Bennett Miller, who, who was a fantastic director, but but also, you know, has a good sense and a visual aesthetic, but he doesn't, he didn't have the, the knowledge and understanding you know, or experience that, that that I had, you know, with all due respect, um, going into this. And it, it's interesting, uh, he he was really, I had an approach for, for lighting the, the baseball games, you know, the night games, and I didn't feel like just turning on all the stadium lighting <laughs> and flattening everything out was going to work for the dramatic nature of, of, of this film and the narrative. And I discussed this with him early on and and really, you know, worked to, to convince him that, that this was important and and the, the, the mood in which we uh, were to film this was a big part of of how we were to present this film visually and and he agreed with it um i think when it came time though he really 
questioned it, and, and he was really concerned and nervous about it. He was worried that it wouldn't look like a real baseball stadium, that there was going to be. And, and by the way, I mean, he has good reason for, for you know, for being concerned. If, if you don't really understand this methodology or trust the, the cinematographer in that, in that regard, it's a scary thing to, to think about, you know, because once it's up there, it's up there and it's done. Now, I really felt like he should trust me because A, we discussed it. B, I did tests on it and, and sort of showed him and he liked it. And then C, I really had a body of work at that point. You know, I did that movie uh, I think it might have been after it was just before Inception. I think I think it was it was after Dark Knight, and you know it really sort of proven myself a bit. And and so I really felt strongly about this, and really had to convince him that it was the right approach. And 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 I in hindsight I don't know how he feels and thinks. I I think he he really liked the look of the film. Um, but I'm 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 so happy I fought that battle, and and I'm so happy that I that I, you know, stuck to my guns and because it looks very realistic. It looks completely like a, a real baseball game and a night game, but it, it has a little more mood to it. And that mood is pretty essential for the, for the dramatic nature of the film. Uh, I, I got a question too, and this is actually just more like lore. You, you'd mentioned that you're a musician, but I've also heard stories like, it's just going back on the, over the years, like, oh, like uh, one day someone I know uh, was at a blues club and Wally Pfister like got up and jammed with the band with like Joseph Gordon-Levitt or something like like like. I actually is, have is weird that... information about okay. this, by the way, because I, <laughs> a... I had posted the question uh, that we had posted on our Facebook page. I shared it on my Facebook wall. And one of my neighbors is uh, kind of a pretty storied musician. His name is Stevie Black. Oh, I know Stevie he, very well. Yeah, well. yeah. I mean, like he and his wife have a kid about the same age as my son, and we run into them in the neighborhood all the time. Right, uh, right. And he's a he's a huge. So now I know like, where you live. <laughs> I know. Yes, it's not hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, Stevie's an incredible musician, by the way. But uh, but yeah, so so yeah, I've been playing guitar since I was 13 years old or something, and it's a really big part of my life. And I I unfortunately fall into these you know situations now where I put it down for really long periods of time. But sometimes I, I you know I, strangely enough, when we were in in England, and that's when that story that you heard happened. But there's a little blues bar that I used to to to, to be, I became friends with the guys there. And I used to play there. It's called Ain't Nothing But The Blues. And it's on Kingley Street in London. I'm going to plug it because my friends just bought the place. But at the time, my friends were just playing there and hanging out. And I got to know them over the years because we shot four parts of four different movies in London. And I was going a little crazy because my family was back here in L.A. And I was in London and, you know, trying to stay out of trouble. So I started going to this blues bar and I started sitting in at the on the at jam sessions on uh, Saturday and Sundays. And that sort of became my, my weekend thing. But then, so I would bring all my friends there too. And um, I know Christian Bale came there uh, once. We tried to get Morgan Freeman there a couple of times and his daughter came, but Morgan never never came. And But a lot of the cast members came and, and Joe, you know, mentioned, hey, I, I you know, I play drums. And I'm like, oh, you, you definitely have to sit in and play. And Joe's a great musician. I mean, he doesn't just play drums. He plays, I think, every instrument. Oh wow! And uh, but yeah, it was a great. It was. It, it, it was all. It was a great cathartic, you know, thing for me to do, and I really enjoyed it. And sometimes I was good, and sometimes I sucked, you know. <laughs> well, 
I, I think maybe we got we got time for one more question and actually one one quick comment here. But um, this gentleman named Vince Rappa says, not a question. But about five years ago, Wally was directing a commercial, and I was a second AC on the job. And he came up to me in the morning, introduced himself, asked my name, thanked me for working on the job, and it was just a really classy move that made my day. Wally's a great guy. Oh, that's really nice of him to say. That's that's really cool. I yeah. you know, look, all I love I love all the guys that I work with, and I love the 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 the, the crews that I work with, and it's sort of interesting when you first you know, get going, you kind of in your own world, you can't really focus on it. You kind of lose sight that, you know, the guys working around you are, are working their ass off for you. And, you know, as time goes on, you start to really realize that and appreciate it more, I think. And then I guess I, I realized too, that I had achieved some level of fame as a cinematographer as well. And I felt like there was a, you could see it in, in, in like in the camera assistance or, you know, particularly with camera assistance, but, but I think in, in grips and electrics too, that, that they were so respectful as, as to even to be at the point where they're kind of nervous around me. And I could sense that right away. And I was like, oh fuck, I'm, I'm so flattered by this, that, <laughs> that, that, you know, I'm going to, I really felt the the need to be respectful and as nice as I could to, to, to these guys. And, and look, they're all hardworking, lovely people. I just really, you know, and, and my core group of, uh, you know, that I work with again, because I'm directing, it's, you know, it's my first ADs and my, my production designer and my focus puller and my gaffer and my key grip. And, and they're all really close to me. Some of them I go back, you know, my first AC was my second AC 20, 22 years ago. So we go back a long way. And then when we go to one of these cities, you know, that's not LA and we bring on these, these, you know, we meet these new guys. I, I can see that they, they have this, you know, respect for me. Obviously they don't know me very well. Um, but, but, but I, I, I think it's my, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not my obligation. I, I feel, I feel like, you know, I, I want to return that and, and show them respect as well. You know, I think you go through a, a period of your career where you're cocky and you're an asshole and you're, you know, I don't think I ever mistreated anybody intentionally. Uh, but I certainly now really just like being around pleasant people and, and, and having as nice of an experience as I can. And I think I like it if they have a nice experience too, you know. And I'm I'm not doing it so that they you know, say on a podcast that I'm a nice guy, <laughs> but it's a nice bonus. <laughs> well, I think that's a, a great place to wrap it up. Um, is there any place, I mean, I, I always ask people if there's a website people can see your work at Instagram account or anything. Oh yeah, that that's a good can... idea. Yeah. Cause who couldn't use more followers? Uh, my Instagram account is W P F I S T E R. So W Fister. Um, I'm getting pretty, pretty political these days. So you and me both. <laughs> so I, I might, I, I, I don't care about toning it down. I'm feeling too strong about things. So, but, uh, but so yeah, I lost a few, lost a few people that, that are, that are fans of the cinematography, but not so much fans of my political views, but uh, they're there on display on my Instagram page on almost a daily basis now. So, uh, but yeah, W Fister, W-P-F-I-S-T-E-R. And that's on Instagram. And there's not really any other showcase for my work, you know. Except for, uh, you know, the movies and, and cable and Netflix and, and everywhere. <laughs> Which is always fun to see them pop up on the screen, you know. <laughs> but it's always it's always nice to see your, your, your body of work out there someplace. Well, Thank you so much for making so much time oh, for us. My pleasure. We, you guys we, are fantastic. Really I, I really, really enjoyed, you know, how you run it, all your questions and the kind of casual vibe. You made it very comfortable for me. 
Oh, thank you. Good. And I enjoy your show and look forward to, to continuing to listen to it. So that was Wally Fister part two. Holy crap. What an exciting interview to get to do. And, uh, Wally did not, did, did not disappoint. Did not disappoint. Not, not at all. He's like made of war stories. His <laughs> every, every story he has is, is like the best war story. It's so great. That was fun. I, and I, I can't wait to, to do that again at some point. And now short ends. Then it's our famed short end time. Uh, do you have a short end this week? I do have a short end and it's kind of encouraging our listeners to prepare for an upcoming interview. And I don't exactly know when we're dropping it, but we just did an interview with uh, just a couple days ago with legendary, legendary, legendary understates how legendary he is. <laughs> Godlike documentarian Frederick Wiseman who oh, yes. uh, I believe every time we've ever had a, a, a documentary filmmaker on here, his name got mentioned probably by me at one point. Either you or the guest, yeah. but definitely. In the pantheon of documentary filmmakers of all time, Frederick Wiseman is, you know, in my opinion, in the top two. And also uh, cited by a an, another upcoming guest as being highly influential who we haven't aired yet, so I'm not going to spoil that. But yes, uh, Frederick Wiseman. So... That, that's your short end? What's, no, no uh, what's, that is not my short end. My short uh, end is for our listeners, before we get to the Frederick Wiseman thing, to mm. maybe go and check out some of his work. And uh, if you if you can get Canopy, which is free with a library card in most cities in America, mm-hmm. if you can get Canopy, his entire filmography, except for his newest film, is up there. His newest film is, is called City Hall. And if you want to watch it uh, right now, it's like a $12 rental, which is how I watched it. And it is well worth it. But it was crazy watching because uh, I, I, before interviewing him, I kind of got caught up on some of his stuff. I'd seen a bunch of his films, but I rewatched several and I saw I watched a bunch that I hadn't seen before. Like he has a narrative film. I didn't even know he had a narrative film. It's called The Last Letter. It's up on Canopy. By the way, smart on Frederick Wiseman, he owns every one of his films. Nobody else owns any of his movies. So, wow. so right. he controls his entire library through Zipporah Films. That's his company. But he's licensed them all to Canopy. And what's interesting watching City Hall is I feel like you could watch City Hall and then you could go all the way back to 1967 and watch Titicut Follies, which was his first film. And it is like the same filmmaking voice, you know, like that was shot on 16 millimeter black and white. This is shot digitally, but he makes his movies the same way that he always did. He does it with basically a crew of three, including himself. And his films have a level of uh, intimacy and uh, incisiveness into uh, not just human behavior, but sort of institutional behavior, because all his films are about institutions. So, there's, you know, there's one about the zoo and there's one about a monastery and there's nothing else like them. Uh, and, and they're short, right? They're very short documentaries. No. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm setting you up here. I, uh, I, I know the answer. So, so, know some the answer. are shorter than others, but City Hall is four and a half hours long. But it's never boring. Like, I was really shocked. And I feel like City Hall was uh, honestly a great palate cleanser after four years of uh, an incompetent government in the United States to see a movie that was made literally last year about the Boston City Hall and to see like, okay, this is about people who are in government, who believe in government, who are trying to do it well and make lives better for their citizens and and know that government can have a, a place in that. 
and uh, it is it's a fascinating movie all the way through. But all his movies are fascinating. They're not like they're not cut into interviews. He doesn't he doesn't ever have an interview in any of his documentaries. So you're, there's not an interview. There isn't always like one character you're following, or it's not leading up to the big show. It's not there isn't a through line like that. It's mm. sort of um, I, I hate to call verite. it a, a pastiche. He would punch you in the face for calling it verite, and he's ninety years old, and he'll take you down. All right, but, um, okay. Which is which is why I brought this up. So, yeah. uh, but what it really is is giving you a perspective that I don't think you can get in any other form of modern documentary. I agree. I would. Yeah, it feels very unfiltered. It feels uh, very true to life, and it feels like he's putting the least of amount of style or judgment on any single shot. It is just letting it play out in front of the camera. Does that sound pretty fair? I think that that's fair, and I think that the interesting thing is to. To have it described like that, you could see it being interesting or you could see it being hard to sit down and watch all the way through. And I find his films just like unbelievably fascinating from beginning to end. I feel like he chooses the material that he shows really well. And in our interview coming up, he actually talks about how he pairs it down into what it is. And, and you know, because he'll in, in interviews, he talks about how manipulated everything is in his films. But when you watch them, they don't feel manipulated and they don't feel manipulative at all but anyway so so yeah i i kind of wanted to burn a short end on that and just say if you have the wherewithal if you got canopy watch give watch it a try a, watch yeah. watch a few of them I, I would always recommend people watch titicut follies although to this day it is one of the most disturbing films i've ever seen um most of his films are not disturbing like titicut follies but it's in a in a uh prison for the mentally insane uh or the criminally insane rather so again, something that a lot of people outside of the people who directly work there don't have experience with or don't get a, an insightful view of something that plays out in front of them the way that his documentaries tend to do. Yeah. So and, and I'll leave it with with this, too. I feel like there's uh, and this is going to sound pretentious as hell, but there's amazing <laughs> anthropological value in his films. Mm. And like when you watch his films, imagine if you could have a Frederick Wiseman film of the wild West, you know, if, if, if you could have a Frederick Wiseman film of colonial times and just kind of see how people conducted themselves and see how they dressed and see what they did and how they worked and how their institutions operated, it, it would be endlessly fascinating to us today. And when you watch it, like one of the ones I watched was zoo and zoo was made in uh, the early nineties, I want to say. And it's like, you know, it's it's not a universe away from the way we are now, but people dress different and they acted different. And, you know, the world was Lots a of hairspray. Yeah, yeah the, it was a different looking world. And it's just interesting fr- Fanny from, packs. from an yeah. anthropological standpoint to kind of watch people just do their jobs and be people under those circumstances. And, you know, and, and, and you kind of it kind of gives you an appreciation for that time and an appreciation for our own time. But uh, anyway, he's just he's one of the masters. And, uh, and if, if you listen to it, when if you watch some of his movies, when we get to the interview, you'll be ready to listen to him talk about what he does, which was as fascinating as I had hoped. Yeah, I, I do know we have a lot of documentary people who uh, who, who listen to our show, and uh, they're probably already familiar with Fred Wiseman. But uh, I would say, uh, for those that aren't or uh, do have a more than a passing interest in documentary, absolutely. Here, here's your heads up. Here's your homework ahead of time. If you pre- if you prep for uh, Ben's uh, interview, which is uh, significantly shorter than City Hall, uh, then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're going to get that much more out of it because he, he is definitely an auteur of the documentary form. And uh, I was not present for this interview, but I can't wait for it. I was giddy excited about doing this interview for days. And I, I uh, you know, again, spent like a week kind of boning up on all of his films. 
Anyway, so uh, Ilya, what is your short end? Follow that motherfucker. Whoo! All right. Well, I think it might have just been in the last episode or two we were talking about raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. So thanks to this pandemic, there's a whole lot of stuff that's kind of going on that probably wouldn't have gone on. And I really hope that stuff like, which is my short end, and I'm not trying to bury the lead here too much. I really hope that things like this continue uh, after the pandemic is over, but there's a group of people calling themselves the pandemic players. Their website is pandemicplayers.org. And for four days on YouTube coming up next week, starting on the day on Thanksgiving Eve on November 25th, starting on November 25th and running for four days because that's SAG regulations. Uh, there's going to be a table read of raising Arizona featuring Zachary Levy as HI McDonough and Allison pill as Ed. And I think that um, that's going to be spectacular. And we'll put links in the show notes at camnoir.com to the promos for it that are on YouTube right now, which have amazingly only been viewed like a hundred times. And Pandemic Players has only like 66 subscribers. Not even me. I'm, I haven't subscribed yet. But uh, this is a really cool thing. And they do a nice uh, they do a really nice promo of it. And it looks like so much fun. And as a huge Coen Brothers and Raising Arizona fan in general, I am totally going to watch this at some point between the time when they they do it live or they 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 goes live and the four days they have to they can leave it up before they take it down and while it's free you don't have to to pay anything for this uh, pandemic players is asking that uh, maybe people would want to do a donation because they're all doing it for charity for Covenant House and Covenant House is uh, for runaway and homeless youth and uh, it's totally a worthy cause and I, that's the best I can do following your Frederick Wiseman but I think it's totally worth it and uh, yeah. I'm going to really, really enjoy watching Zachary Levy and Allison Pill and the entire cast of the Pandemic Players do a table read of Raising Arizona. It should be awesome. No, that sounds like a lot of fun and uh, and funny. And uh, Raising Arizona, I mean, like, you know, kind of cemented Nicolas Cage as a movie star at when it when it came out. But when you watch it, it's impossible not to appreciate how brilliant that script is. And it, it would be great to see other people interpret it. Yeah, I think the the first ten minutes are, are probably the most, you know, solid bit of storytelling possibly in 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 modern film history. It's just it's almost encapsulates its own movie. It's as it's as uh, interesting and engaging of an intro as even something like Pixar's Up. It's fantastic. It's just it's a different different flavor. I mean, I still prefer John dies at the end, but yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. <laughs> uh, well. Uh, well, Ben, that just about does it for uh, for another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Uh, that Those are our, our, our short ends. Where can people find you? Uh, please go to benrockonline.com, and uh, you can find all my social medias there. Add me or uh, whatever, you know, hit me up, say hi, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all that, all that crap. Not on not on TikTok. Been kind of looking at TikTok, and I'm like, I don't I don't get it. I don't, I don't think it's for me. I think this is for uh, younger people than me. Hmm. You, you don't want to bust a move? Isn't I that don't. Kind well, of actually, like a... I do know a guy uh, named Michael Rayner who is uh, a world-class juggler, like just hmm. one of the most amazing jugglers ever. And uh, he's having a lot of success on TikTok. And he does, if you if you look up Michael Rayner on TikTok, you'll you'll see why. He, he, he does some pretty impressive stuff on there with that, that kind of pushes the boundaries of what you think of when I say the word juggler. <laughs> but my, Michael Bowling ball, machete, and golf ball. <laughs> uh, yeah, check it out. I think you'll dig it. All right, cool. Anyway, uh, where can people find you, Ilya? 
Uh, they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, the uh, pre- presenting sponsor of the show. Uh, you can find me there Monday through Friday, usually at least half a day. Uh, I spend my time uh, mostly actually trying to educate people in a one-on-one fashion uh, about how to make good decisions uh, regarding gear or maybe just socially life decisions. one-on-one. Y- yeah, socially distanced one-on-one. There, it's via the phone. It's oh. not, uh, yeah. I, I, when people come in, we have the most high-tech and uh, modern social distancing sort of like... Uh, technology in there including like sanitization stations and giant sneeze guards and markings on the floor to make sure that people don't stand too close to each other and stanchions all the things that you would want plus our doors locked someone just can't wander in we strictly control the number of people in the building and all that fine stuff very good very good um so before we go who should we thank oh yeah let's uh let's thank uh alana cody Producer Alana Cody, thank you for putting all this stuff together and making sure that we... Oh, my God. Um, and, and I yeah. mean, like, we have so many interviews still coming up. And, you know, the uh, the Frederick Wiseman one was kind of a, you know, a lifelong dream come true for me. But we have some... We have a couple other <laughs> lifelong dream come true kind of interviews coming up really soon. to come soon. up with some new dreams. I do. <laughs> okay, I do. I'm going to have to work on some new dreams. Knock, uh, knocking them all down here. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, she's just working her ass off getting us some, some amazing uh, people to talk to. Pandemic was good for productivity in podcast land. So, yeah. Uh, it was pretty uh, good. Yeah, no, it's kept us super busy. Um, we should also thank Ben Katz, who hopefully in re-recording, we've made less of a headache for tonight, but still had his work cut out, making us not sound like idiots. You know what? I think we did a pretty good job this time. I think Ben Katz can phone it in. Really. We we really, we did a good job with this. We waited till now to say that though. And then yeah, that's uh, what we did. We're, we're really smug. Lastly, we should <laughs> thank Kazal Atrakshi, who provided 100% of the music that you've heard in this episode and who probably didn't listen to it. Although Wally Fister is someone he might've checked out. We'll see. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I hope he does. I hope this is the one that, that Kazal Atrakshi breaks down and says, you know what? Maybe I'll subscribe to this podcast maybe I'll, that maybe I've been I'll, doing music I'll, for for seven <laughs> years. So. Thank you again, Ilya, and thank you out there in uh, Listenerville, wherever you are. Uh, we really appreciate you listening. Please like and subscribe if you haven't already, and we will see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.